Welcome to the Baptist Broadcast. Thank you for tuning in. It is, of course, a beautiful uh, Lord's Day evening, technically the end of the day. Um, and uh, we have enjoyed such a fantastic Lord's Day today. It was a, it was a beautiful Sabbath, and um, uh, I had the privilege of, of teaching on Balthazar Hubmare for Sunday school. We're going through church history right now, and I wanted to look at a prominent... Uh, and extant, rather extant, Anabaptist, uh, who lived uh, late 15th to early uh, 16th century. So we looked at him and what he believed and how he aligned with, uh, with orthodoxy, his confession of the Apostles' Creed, his view of believers' baptism, and so on. So that was a, I think that was a helpful study. And then, of course, we, we, we continued our exposition through Hebrews 11 uh, in the morning and then in the afternoon, uh, continued on through the Orthodox Catechism um, and uh, by Hercules Collins, and, uh, and uh, they're on question 11. Uh, we're set up now to go on to question 12, which I'm, I'm very excited to do. Uh, what I wanted to do is, is come on here, and I wanted to uh, discuss, I, I, I wanted to do, I really want to do a deep dive into uh, William Lane Craig's recent article uh, that appeared on The First Things, uh, the first things is a, I, I believe it's a, a monthly published magazine. It could be quarterly. I'm not sure, um, but uh, they have all sorts of things on there, and 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 numerous authors that contribute and and so forth. It's a, it's a pretty massive um, uh, outlet. And uh, anyway, he he published on there an article that is titled um, the historical Adam. Uh, and it's by William Lane Craig, Dr. Uh, William Lane Craig. This came out, uh, or it is, it is for October 2021, so it's going to appear in that issue. However, it's available digitally, um, obviously, right now. So you can go to First Things and actually read the article yourself. Now, I call this a deep dive, um, but I'm not going to dissect every single little paragraph of, of this particular article. But we're only going to look at some of the wave tops. We're going to look at some of the uh, the most uh, controversial and and even troubling passages in this article, and we're going to try and respond to it um, uh, with 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 logic and uh, biblical data. So um, now let let me say this: uh, this is uh, a a crucially important article. Much of what uh, Dr. Craig publishes is very important. And the reason it's important, it's not necessarily because it is, uh, it, it is uh, you know, the qualitative height of orthodoxy or, uh, you know, the, 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 the highest octane theology you could get. The reason a lot of things that Bill Craig does is very important is because uh, he is uh, not only very influential in the academic world, but he, uh, he, has a, he has somewhat of a connection to the popular realm as well. Um, and not only this, but a lot of his ideas fly under the radar, and he uses terminology that can, at first glance, comport with orthodoxy, uh, creedal orthodoxy. Um, but uh, when you start getting into the weeds and you start digging deeper into what he actually is saying and teaching, um, y- you will find that uh, it's it's actually not orthodox. However, the uh, the laity usually will not dig that deep into what Craig says. So he has a huge influence even at the pop level. And, um, and, and so uh, it's important to, I think, uh, look at things like these and look at things like these uh, very deeply. Now, 
this I think is is kind of a uh, uh, a prologue, if you will, to uh, a book that's coming out on Adam. In fact, you can you can get on Amazon and and find it. Just look up Bill Craig's name on Amazon, and it's it's a book. It's a new book that's coming out on the historical Adam. Now, a few things about about William William Craig's position here that make it a little bit slippery. Craig does affirm a, a, a an historical Adam. Okay, so he he affirms an historical Adam. He doesn't just affirm a a kind of uh, um, I guess you could say an obscure corporate Adam. Uh, that's that's one position. He actually uh, affirms a personal, uh, individual historical Adam. Now you hear that and you think, oh, okay, well this is this is an orthodox position. Um, well, not quite, because the way he gets to the particular affirmation of the historical Adam is not orthodox. Um, it's a it's a it's a denial of uh, orthodox hermeneutics, a, a view of inspiration and inerrancy, um, and and he would of course strongly disagree with with my shot over the bow there that he's denying inerrancy um, and infallibility of the holy scriptures. But I want to I want to to point out why that's the case. But but to do that, I'll bring this up. I'll bring this window capture up here. And that's not that one. It's this one here. And uh, and we'll just look at, at this together. Now, uh, again, I'm not going to go through every paragraph. I've already gone through the article. Um, and uh, here he has kind of a, a rubric for mythology, what constitutes um, a, a myth. Um, but I have all of the relevant sections that we're going to look at here in this video and podcast uh, outlined uh, or highlighted, rather, in yellow. If you're listening... To this, and you, you can only hear the podcast recording. Uh, I'm going to read these so that you can hear them. But if you're watching, uh, you'll be able to actually see them up on the screen because I have this window capture here. So um, the f the first claim that he makes that I've picked out to actually look at is this one here. You see highlighted in yellow, and I'll just read it. It says this quote: "The claim here is not that the narratives of Genesis 1 through 11 are derived from the myths of the ancient Near East. So he's not saying that, you know, Moses or, or whoever he believes wrote the, the Pentateuch is just, you know, kind of uh, picking up seeds in the ancient world and throwing, to get, throwing them together arbitrarily to try, try to explain human origins. He's not saying that. So he's saying that these are, these are not myths that are, that are derived, per se, from, from ancient Near East myths. Hermann Gunkel, he goes on, 1862 to 1932, and the pan-Babylonian school that followed him made such an assertion, but few scholars defend the dependence thesis today. That is that the uh, Genesis narrative, at least Genesis 1 through 11, depends on pagan mythology surrounding it historically. And then he goes on, he says, Rather, the claim is that the primeval narratives belong to the genre of myth principally on the basis of their sharing common mythic themes and their effort to anchor present realities in the deep past. Now, what uh, Craig has said here so far is not, it could be read charitably in the sense that he's not denied the literal history yet of the Genesis 1 through 11 account. Um, he said that it's constituted mythology purely because it shares traits of the mythic genre. Right, and so uh, he's not denying its history or its historicity or its literality uh, uh, yet, um, but he's setting the audience up to do that, uh, and we're going to look at where he does that here in a moment. 
but he's identifying Genesis 1 through 11 with myth, um, and he may not be denying its literality or its historicity at this point, but he's also not affirming it either. Uh, and this was the part where Craig gets slightly slippery, because he's going to go on from this point, and he's going to go, and he's going to say, well, that which is myth isn't necessarily all historical, uh, and that which is history uh, isn't necessarily uh, all mythical or not mythical. But let's go on and see what he what he what else he has to say. Again, this isn't a true deep dive in the sense of the term. We're not expositing every little sentence here in this article. We're looking at some of the wave tops here, and there's a lot more that could be said on stuff that's not highlighted. There's very important things and assumptions that he makes throughout the article. Uh, for example, he affirms an old earth, as we'll see in a moment. He's a theistic evolutionist, and so on. Um, but we're not going to we're not going to get into that per particularly here. Um, he, he says this, he says, we should not imagine that the genealogies contemplate the enormous leaps that would be necessary to bring them into harmony with what we know of the history of mankind. Now, just so everyone understands what he's doing here and, and the context of this <clears throat> is the, um, uh, is the genealogy, all right? The genealogy from Adam to Noah, and then, uh, the genealogy from Noah on to, uh, to Abraham. Okay, so uh, he's, he's talking about that, and he's saying that we shouldn't imagine that these ge genealogies contemplate the enormous leaps that would be necessary to bring them into harmony with what we know of the history of mankind. So he's saying, based on the current science of anthropology, secular science of anthropology, we know that the, the omissions in these genealogies and also the long lifespans cannot be literal. And he's making that claim based on what current anthropological, uh, what the current anthropological uh, or current scientific community on anthropology believes uh, about the history of mankind. He says, but neither should we imagine that they comprise purely fictitious characters. What he's saying here is that like there are, there are glimpses, there are uh, bursts of the light of literality throughout the, the cloud, so to speak, of myth. Um, and he says that uh, we can avoid these antitheses by understanding the brief history they chronicle as a mytho-history not to be taken literally. Here's where he's denying the literality of the account. So this is, a, this is not simply mythology, and it's not simply historicity in terms of genre. This is a, a, a hybrid genre called mytho-history. And so it, for that reason, because it's, it's an intermixture of mythology and history, it should not be taken at face value, literally. All right, so there's... There, the, now, um, what this does is it is going to undermine any truth claims he makes concerning either Genesis 1 through 11 or any really uh, scriptural truth claim that he makes. Um, and, and the reason that it does that is, it, so if you, if you cut out the legs of literality out from under Genesis 1 through 11, uh, you lose the right to affirm anything literal about Genesis 1 through 11 because the question arises, well, you can't, you're begging the question. If... Uh, if verse 2, for example, is mythical and verse 4, you're saying, is not, 
you're begging the question, why should we think verse 4 is not mythical and historical and not verse 2? Why should we think there is any ounce of historicity in this account or of literality in this account? And, and why should we think it's not all mythology? He goes on and he says in Genesis 1 through 11, uh, or if, if Genesis 1 through 11 functions as mytho-history, then these chapters need not be read literally. The accounts of the origin and fall of man are clearly metaphorical or figurative in nature, featuring as they do an anthropomorphic deity incompatible with the transcendent God of the creation account. The anthropomorphic nature of God, merely hinted at in chapter 2, becomes inescapable in chapter 3, where God is described as walking in the garden of the cool of the day and calling audibly to Adam in his hideout. Here is an extreme view on the one hand, what, what Craig is presenting here. On the other hand is the other extreme view, which is quasi-anthropomorphism uh, or anthropomorphitism. Uh, that is expressed by Owen Strayan as he criticizes what uh, what what Craig is saying here. So it seems like what Strayan wants to say is that, no, actually we shouldn't believe what Craig believes because we, we need to be able to make room in our theology proper, our doctrine of God, for a, a, a hyper-relational God to be able to actually come in his very being and walk in the cool of the day with Adam. And of course, Craig is saying, well... Uh, God walking in the cool of the day with Adam and being a transcendent God are two mutually exclusive things. The piece missing here is that when God appears to man in such a way and when God uh, fellowships with man in such a way, prior to the incarnation, there's a category in theology for that. We call it a, a Christophany. It's a pre-incarnate uh, revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and so th we need to understand this in terms of... of, of a genre, if you will, of God's revelation, a, a, spe a specific species, excuse the, uh, uh, the redundancy there, um, of God's revelation, uh, namely a, a pre-incarnate Christ appearing to, at, to Adam in the cool of the day. The second Adam, if you will, appearing to the first Adam in the cool of the day. It's a beautiful redemptive picture. Um, and, and so that doesn't require Craig's view on the one hand, it also doesn't require Strayan's uh, pseudo or, or quasi rather uh, anthropomorphite view that God, according to his very being, uh, needs to be able to come and do this. Uh, there, there is the, the middle aspect, the mediating aspect there of revelation. And if you want to hear what I'm talking about with regard to Strayan, um, you can look at his podcast, his most recent podcast is on this issue, William Lane Craig Misfires on the Historical Adam, Why Theology. <clears throat> depends on historicity. And he's making many of the same points I do. Um, and then, of course, on the Doctrine of God issue, there uh, has been a book that has been published by um, uh, that has been published by Jeff Johnson, Dr. Jeffrey Johnson of Grace Baptist Theological Seminary, whom Craig or whom Owen Strayan works for, uh, and and that's a seminary that he now teaches at. And this book brings into question a lot of classical uh, theological doctrine of God. And uh, I responded to that in a three-part um, book review uh, slash essay that you can see on my website, joshsummer.org. Um, so if you have questions on, on the Doctrine of God front, check there. Uh, check in, in Owen's uh, podcast and then check it at my website with the review of Dr. Jeffrey Johnson's book. And also, of course, buy his book if you are interested to see what he says. 
So what Craig is saying here is that, you know, it's obviously metaphorical because God can't come and, and walk in the cool of the day. Uh, literally, that can't be literal. Well, it could actually be literal. It could be literal um, in the same way that uh, that Moses literally sees God at the top of Mount Sinai. It could be literal in the same way that Jacob wrestles with God. I mean, here's the thing. When you remove the literality, especially in Genesis 1 through 11, you've laid the foundational groundwork to actually deny a bunch of things that must be considered literal throughout the rest of the text. And I would argue that Genesis 1 through 11 must be considered literal as well, given the fact that Jesus talks about Adam in a particular way, and Paul talks about Adam in a particular way as well. And so Genesis 1 through 11 must be referring to a literal Adam. Craig agrees that it's talking about a literal person named Adam, but with his words here, He's denying the literality of surrounding of the surrounding context of the personal and individual Adam. So what grounds does he have for saying that Adam is a literal person and that Genesis 1 through 11 is speaking literally about Adam when he's denying everything around it is actually literal? Why does he arbitrarily preclude or exclude Adam from uh, that bucket, as it were, of uh anti, or not anti, but um, as as uh, other than literal uh, figures uh, or myths. He goes on, he says, then there is the infamous snake in the garden. He makes for a great character in the story, conniving, sinister, opposed to God, perhaps a symbol of evil, but not plausibly a literal reptile. Now he says this, he, he uses the expression, this is not plausible. Um, it's not plausible to think this. And you have to ask the question, well, what is his metric of plausibility? Because when you bring the omnipotence, uh, omnipotency of God into the mix and you have uh, obediential potential uh, thrown into the mix and not just natural potentiality, but obediential potentiality, which flows from miracle. And may maybe I'm maybe I'm shooting over some some heads here at this point. But when you when you introduce the omnipotence of God into the equation, what what's plausible at that point? Um, from a, a mere naturalistic historical vantage point, Miracle is never plausible, and that includes the miracles that Jesus brings to pass during his earthly ministry. That includes the resurrection itself. Uh, Jesus does things that the secular history professor is going to deny on grounds of those things not being plausible. So what's Craig's metric here? It seems like he's trying to ride the fence between uh, that, 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 that is, is set up between uh, contemporary academia and biblical orthodoxy, Christian orthodoxy, on the other hand. And he's trying to ride that fence as carefully as possible because he don't want to, doesn't really want to offend either side. Both sides are, are his audience. Um, so this is not plausibly a literal reptile. Why, why that's the case, I mean, you'd have to ask him. He doesn't really explain why he thinks it's not plausible uh, again, if you bring into the mix God's omnipotence uh, or omnipower, all-powerfulness, then you know your, your threshold for plausibility needs to be a lot higher than if you're just looking at the natural world, because at that point you're looking at the supernatural ability of God. This is something that goes beyond the natural world and is transcendent of it. Um, and he says, such as one might encounter in one's own garden, for the author knew that snakes neither talk nor are intelligent agents. The question is, of course, why would the author write that if he knew that that wasn't the case? And he could say, well, he's, it's a psychological reason. He's, he's, he, is, he is speaking to his audience using mytho-history. 
So that's why he would write that. And he says the last sentence there in that paragraph is, again, the snake's personality and speech cannot be attributed to the miraculous activity of God, lest God become the author of the fall. But I don't know anywhere in Christian history that says only God uh, performs miracles or is able to manipulate the natural world um, because it, it, it's very apparent that angels can do that as well. Um, so I'm not so sure why he is 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 kind of characterizing that as one of the only options that we could you know that we could possibly go with. He says, when God drives Adam and Eve from the garden and, and posts cherubim and a flashing sword at its entrance to block their re-entry, this is doubtless not intended to be literal since cherubim were regarded as creatures of fantasy and symbol in ancient Israel. See, there's no, there's no limit. Now he's denying the reality of cherubim. It is not as though the author thought what realism requires, that the cherubim remained at the entrance of the garden for years on end until it was either overgrown with weeds or swept away by the flood. Why not? Why not? That's my question. That would be my question to him. Why can't that be the case? Um, that's not. There's nothing illogical about that. Um, maybe you think it's not plausible, but again, what's your threshold for plausibility? We're talking about an omnipotent God here and hyper-obedient cherubim who obey God willingly and immediately and unfailingly. Um, so the, the question would be, of course, what is your metric? And uh, he doesn't explain that in the article. I, I, I wonder if he's going to explain it in his book. I don't look for it. But uh, but who knows? Maybe he will. Um, now, he interestingly, this is what's this is one of the most interesting, I think, self-refuting parts of the work is that he asked the question, if the stories are not meant to be read literally, what central truths do they convey? And he says the following almost immediately come to mind. God is one, a personal transcendent creator of all physical reality, perfectly good and worthy of worship. That's number one. Number five, work is good, a sacred assignment by God to mankind to steward the earth and its creatures. Number seven, mankind is to set apart one day per week as sacred and for refreshment from work. Number nine, human sin is cumulative and self-destructive, resulting in God's last judgment, just judgment. So those are these are ten marks that are these are ten supposed truths that we can derive out of Genesis that remain historical and literal while everything else perhaps is not historical or literal, uh, but mythological. And the problem with that is why? Why are these truths literal, but the ones uh, surrounding them are not? Uh, and, and he says, such truths do not depend upon reading the, primar the primeval narratives literal literalistically. Well, yes, they do. Number nine, human sin is cumulative and self-destructive, resulting in God's just judgment. How do you know that that's literal if everything else is, is not literal? Um, and so what he's saying here is that basically this is all mythology, but you can derive these principles. Well, how do you know that these principles have any kind of import to the natural world? How do you know they import at all? into our lives? How do you know they import in any, court of, in any sort of uh, creational ordinance way, any sort of prescriptive way, simply by looking at the mythology? What is your metric there, again, for telling such things? So yes, I think it does depend upon reading the, primate, the primeval narratives literalistically. 
<clears throat> he goes on, he says, uh, however we reconstruct the story and its evolution within the Christian tradition, what is clear is that Jude is citing extra biblical legends about the burial of Moses. We thus apparently have here a reference to the literary Moses of the, of the Testament of Moses or the Assumption of Moses, not to the literary Moses of the Pentateuch. So again, he's doing genre criticism and he's, and he's reverse engineering that onto the integrity of the scriptures, which I think is a bad idea. It makes no logical sense in the final analysis because you have no objective way of telling what is literal and what is not literal. It's all up to opinion, really. Oh, well, um, the talking snake thing, that just doesn't seem too literal to me. Um, marriage at the beginning, that early, that just doesn't really seem too literal to me. I mean, why not? Why not reject something like marriage, the creational ordinance of marriage, uh, as something that just doesn't seem plausible to be literal? Um, a lot of people have done this with, with the individual Adam. Adam is not uh, a, a literal person. Um, it just doesn't seem like that should be the case. It doesn't seem plausible. The idea, he, go, he, he goes on, that an oral tradition emanating from the antediluvian Enoch had been preserved over thousands of years to reach the ears of the author of, of one Enoch can hardly be called plausible. Now, he's referring to um, Jude quoting Enoch, uh, the book of Enoch, and he says, well, uh, Jude doesn't really think that Enoch uh, wrote this. Um, he's, he's quoting from uh, some other source, it just doesn't seem plausible. Now, I think there's a there's an argument there. You could you could make the argument, of course, that that Enoch really didn't write the book of Enoch, but Jude is doing something like Paul did, for example, with Eretus and quoting the pagan poet uh, at the Areopagus, um, and he's and he's doing it for a didactic and rhetorical effect. And uh, Jude is doing the same thing, um, uh, quoting the prophetic words in the book of Enoch. Um, so I don't think that you have to say that Enoch wrote the book of Enoch to justify Jude's quotation of it. Um, but again, he's using this phrase here. It just doesn't seem plausible. Okay. What's your standard for that? What's your, what's your metric for evaluating what's plausible and what's not? Um, what's your rubric in other words? The tradition, he says, in some form doubtless goes back to the pre-Christian era, um, Paul cites this extra-canonical tradition in order to identify the rock in the story as, as Christ, who sustained Israel throughout its sojourn in the wilderness. Uh, Craig here is talking about the rock that is Christ, the, walk, the, the rock that actually provided water to the Israelites uh, during their time in, in the um, during their time in the wilderness, the 40-year wilderness wandering point or time. And uh, again, Craig's bringing this into question as to whether or not it was historical or literal. He says, in every case, we must pay close attention to the context in order to determine whether the New Testament is asserting a figure's historicity or referring to the figure illustratively. Um, and now, okay, so the question is here is whether or not the New Testament is conscious of uh, these things happening literally or whether or not the New Testament just thinks of them as happening figuratively. What I want to suggest here is that um, Craig is is missing out, and I think Craig is missing out on this because he's been brought up in a particular hermeneutical philosophical school of thought, which is historical grammatical hermeneutics, which has been the 
uh, domineering hermeneutical methodology from John MacArthur uh, to um, uh, Dallas DTS, Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, so the, the historical grammatical hermeneutic has been run-of-the-mill hermeneutics for, for uh, over 100 years, uh, especially in this country. Um, what Craig is missing here is, is something more closely related to the medieval hermeneutics uh, called the quadriga, or the fourfold sense of the text. And you had the historical, the literal sense, uh, but then you had the, uh, the uh, anagogical, the tropological, and the allegorical senses that arose from the literal or the historical sense. And the, so there's a manifold sense there. The reformers and the post-reform streamlined this into a census duplex, all right, a twofold sense, where there is the uh, immediate sense, and then you have the fuller sense or the census plenoir in the Latin. And what the census plenoir is is actually exemplified perfectly in Hebrews one five, where the author of Hebrews quotes a text from. Second uh, Samuel seven fourteen, which is immediately about Solomon within its historical context, but the author of Hebrews takes that and applies it to the Lord Jesus Christ because he's showing us the fuller sense of the Old Testament, especially as it regards Solomon. Now that Solomon was a type of Christ in all of this, um, now that doesn't negate. Craig seems to have an either or. That doesn't negate that Solomon was a historical person and was uh, everything the Bible said that he was, right, uh, within that historical point in time. Uh, so everything in the Bible that talks about Solomon is literal and historical. However, God is using the literal and historical to paint an actual broader picture and to to reveal something actually much more deeper than just those historical persons' lives and their politics and their situations, their trials, and so on and so forth, that he's actually, in his providence, using those historical events and persons to typify the Lord Jesus Christ who would come and stand in their place as their perfection, as their other and greater perfection. Um, and so... Uh, Hermeneutics, I think, plays in largely here uh, in terms of what a person su- assumes is, is, is proper in terms of how we interpret a text, especially how we interpret the Bible. And if you are, if your hermeneutic that you're assuming is, is only a, a, an historical grammatical one, then I could see how you could get to a place where Craig is, where he's saying that, uh, well, the New Testament seems to use these things figuratively. Um, so that must mean that it understood those things figuratively and not historically. In, a, in other words, a figurative or, let's say, an allegorical interpretation is mutually exclusive to the historical interpretation. But according to the census duplex, uh, that's just not the case. And the historical hermeneutic uh, for the majority of church history has been along those lines uh, in agreement. And... Um, so I think a, a large piece of the that's missing here in, in in Craig's own work is is hermeneutics, and he's and he's erring as a result of of having a bad a faulty hermeneutic. He says, given the myth- mythical nature of the primeval history of Genesis one through two, 
it, or 1 through 11, it is to modern science that we must now turn in an attempt to answer this question. Now, I'm just going to stop here because I'm not going to go and, and read his justification for his view of theistic evolution and how it leads up to actually two people that were given souls at some point by God and, and constituted as human beings from uh, from uh, from uh, Neanderthals or whatever. So anyway, hopefully this was helpful in terms of understanding how William Lane Craig's own view undercuts his his other views or the other things that he affirms, namely uh, that there are historical truths, literal truths communicated to us in the book of Genesis. Yet he'll turn around and say great swaths of that book, namely much of what is read in in Genesis 1 through 11 should not be read literally. Anyway, God bless you guys. Have a wonderful rest of your day.